This podcast was recorded at Redemption Alhambra Village in Phoenix, Arizona. For more information about Redemption Alhambra Village, visit redemptionaz.com. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to start with a little bit of an intro and kind of work through um, what we went through in the last 11 chapters. And here's the reason why. The reason why I'm going to go through these 11 chapters is because Romans chapter 12, as you're going to see in a minute, starts with therefore. This is a transition word, and whenever you see the word therefore, you got to find out what it's there for. And in order to find out what it's there for, you got to look at Romans chapter 1 through 11. Okay, so I'm going to run through these, and, and hopefully if you've been here the whole time, this will just be remembrance. But if you haven't been here, this will catch you up to where we're at, because this is a pivotal verse. Rome, uh, Romans chapter 1 of sin. Now, the reason why this is important is because many of us in our minds think that sin is just bad behavior. Now, let me let me let me clarify that. Sin does lead to bad behavior, but bad behavior is not just what sin is, okay? Now, and here's the reason why we have to know that is because Romans chapter 1 dealt with in short what we, what I'll call rebellious sin. All the sins you think of when you think of the word sin, all, you know, fornication and all the outward things, you know, uh, greed, all the things that we deal with on the outward, we see those things taking place. But then in chapter 2, for two chapters, it starts to deal with self-righteousness. It turns towards the church, if you will, and starts pointing out all the reasons good people who think that they do good things do those good things. So not only is sin something you can see externally, but it points to why do you even do the good things that you do? Do you know that some of you can give money out of a pure heart and others can be generous with their money so that people can look at them and go, wow, they're generous. It points to the intentions of why you even do good things. Some of us do good things to try to earn favor from others and press others. Others do good things to try to manipulate. Others do good things to try to earn favor from God. What he's showing us in the first three chapters of Romans is that sin is much broader than bad behaviors. It digs into the heart of why we even do anything good. Self-righteousness. And the reason why Paul is doing this is because he wants the line to be flat. Because some people think they're better than others because they're more moral than others. But he wants the line to be flat. What he wants us all to see is all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. He wants the line to be flat. He wants us all to know we all need a Savior. We all need someone to come and rescue us. And that's what we see in Romans chapter 3, verse 21. It's the dawn of a new day, as Paul say, but now, and we dive into the depths of the gospel when he says, but now, and then he declares what Jesus has done to bring justification and redemption and propitiation. And those words we dove into to try to figure out what they mean. But basically, it's this legal term that he's made you right. Redemption is this marketplace term that he's purchased you and now you're free. Propitiation is a religious term that says he's provided a sacrifice for you. He's paid the price. He's made you right before God. This proclamation of what Christ has done is this dawn of the new day as we dive into the depths of the gospel. 
the work of Jesus. Then chapter 4 dives into the depth of faith. Why is this important? Because the way that we receive this work of Christ is through faith, not through works. And just so we can clarify, faith is not name it, claim it, say the right thing, give a seed to meet your greed. That's not what faith is. Faith is trusting in the finished work of Christ. I can't save myself. What Christ has done is sufficient, and I put my trust in him. Faith is trusting in God. That's the depths of faith that we studied in chapter 5, then chapter, on chapter 4. Now chapter 5 and 6 dives into the depth of union with Christ. As you can see, this keeps getting deeper and deeper and deeper. And what we end up seeing is the goal of salvation. Chapter 5 and 6 messed with me. It, it made me uh, shout a few times as I was studying. This really uh, encouraged my soul because I realized so many times that if we are asked, what's the point of being saved, I hear more answers about, well, I get to be blessed, I get to live a comfortable and good life, I get to have these things, but what chapter 5 and 6 show us is what we get in salvation is we get God. We get to be one with God. We were separated from him, which is the, the, the horror of sin, that we are separated from our creator. But because of what Christ has done, we get to be united with him. That means we are in Christ. That means everything that is true about Jesus is true about me. Union with Christ is the aim of this salvation. God has, through his son, brought us back into covenant with him chapter 7 then dives into the depths of freedom and shows us that we're free from the law and we're free from the flesh the works of the flesh chapter 8 dives a little bit deeper this thing just keeps getting better and better and more glorious it shows us that not only are we in Christ but Christ is in us by the spirit the depth of the indwelling spirit, the picture that comes to my mind is that God not only brought us into relationship with him, but knew we could not live out this life the way we, could, we need to on our own. So he unzips our flesh and puts his spirit inside of us and lives his life through us. And when that's true, when we're in Christ and Christ is in us, chapter 8 just speaks of, glorious promises i mean the the most powerful wonderful promises you see in romans chapter 8 and all of those promises are true because god is faithful because god is loving because god is in control all of those promises hinge on this reality of who god is and that's why chapter 9 through 11 jump into the depths of the sovereignty of God. A lot of people get tripped up on 9 through 11, and we talked about that. A lot of people get hung up on these kinds of things, like God shows mercy to who he wants to, and he, and he, and he chooses, and he, this predestination words, all these kinds of words that we see in, in Romans uh, chapter 9 through 11 is showing this. God is in charge of this plan of salvation. He is the one who is writing the story. And, and for those of us who trust in Christ, 
That's really good news for us. That means nobody else is in control. That means he is. And what he shows us in chapter 11 is that is even good news for Israel. Why? Because God has a future even for Israel. He shows us the depths of his sovereignty, the depths of his plan of salvation, the depth of redemption. Now, all of that from chapter 1 through 11 is why we have to cover all of that before we get to uh, chapter 12. So we can all be caught up. Now, here's a great concern of mine. A great concern of mine is how highly theological Romans chapter 1 through 11 is. It is a masterpiece of theology. It's a masterpiece. So highly theological that people have spent lives diving into the depths of these things and what they don't realize is they begin to think that theology means you think deeply. And so we look at people who think deeply and we go, that's a theologian. And some people can fall into the trap of chapter 1 through 11 or any kind of theological thought. And here's how they can fall into the trap. They believe theology's aim is to make one smart. They look at this as a textbook. And here's the point of education. At least in our culture and society, the point of education is that you're smarter than everybody else. Your smartness means you got this degree and they should be impressed because of how smart you are. Look at how much you know. And with that comes an arrogance. It feel, you feel better than others. And the problem with this kind of understanding, especially applied to the study of God and His Word, is anybody who jumps into the doctrines of grace, and I see this happen quite a bit, jumps into the doctrines of grace and get deep understanding of theology and understanding of His sovereignty and His plan of salvation, and you walk out the other side and you feel smart, you've missed the point. You feel better than everybody else. You really missed the aim of all that we just studied. That's why it's important for us to understand he spent all of these 11 chapters building us to the outflow of theological understanding. Now, John Frame, who I would call a theologian, he might argue with that, but I, he's, he's definitely far smarter than I am. Uh, he writes an article with these same concerns. I'm going to read some of his article, and, and, and I'm going to put all my cards on the table. I agree with him. If I could have wrote, written this good, I would have, but I didn't. He wrote this, so I'm going to read it to you, and I think it will make a lot of sense. Here's what John Frame says. He says, the term theology scares people. It sounds formidable, formidable esoteric, abstract, technical. Further, many of us have suspicions about the discipline that is perhaps irrelevant to our walk before God or even worse a sort of human presumption how can we dare to think of grasping the living word of God and stuffing it into an intellectual system thus 
was I warned about theology during my youth, and although I now think the objections to it can be answered, I am glad I was warned. We should all be a little suspicious about academic theology because studied in the wrong way, I can get mixed up with some unhealthy ways of thinking. Here's what he said. The best way to define theology, in my view, and let me add just Aaron's, in Aaron's view too, not that that goes anywhere with you, but I, I just want to add that, is the application of the whole Bible to the whole human life. Many people think they're theologians or look at somebody and say that's a theologian because they can understand Romans 9 through 11 and the mysteries of it and articulate it to you. And they can go through all of Romans chapter 1 through 8 and dive into the depths of those things and walk out and they look like they really get it. But what John Frame is saying is the real theologians are those who can take it and apply it to all of their life. They may be smarter, they may be articulated better, but what do their lives look like? Here is what we saw last week as Wes preached Romans eleven thirty three through 36, and he said this, theology leads to doxology, which he was saying this, theology or the great understanding of who God is leads to praise. That's why the whole time Wes was sitting up here, he was rubbing his head. If you were here last week, and he even said it in his sermon, he said, all of these verses are blowing my mind. That's why I'm rubbing my head. Now, what I think of when I think of theology leads to praise is, I don't know if you've ever been on YouTube or anything like that, but they have something called a praise break. You know what I'm saying? If you haven't, Google it. You'll love it. The band gets going, the beat's cranking, and and they're just going crazy. And, and everything's in. This is, this is what Paul is saying in Romans 11, 33 through 36. Basically, he's showing us after all of this deep thought, it led Paul to a praise break. Oh, the depths of the riches. This is blowing my mind. No one can counsel God. It led him to praise God. Theology leads to doxology. And then what we're going to see right now as we continue our study in chapter 12 is orthodoxy, which means correct belief. So Romans 1 through 11, orthodoxy leads to orthopraxy, which is correct action. Correct action. Praise God leads to worship of God. That's what we're going to see today. Praise of God. When we have correct belief, it leads us to praise, to awe, to wonder of who God is. And out of that leads to worship, a life before Him. So, as we stand... We're going to read, once again, Romans chapter 12, verses 1 through 2. But just to run at it a little bit more, I'm going to read the verses that Wes studied last week. We won't be studying those, but I just want you to hear this, this doxology, that after 11 chapters of this argument to 
pull this Roman church away from trying to depend on their own sin, their own self-righteousness, to point them to Christ, to have their faith and trust in Him, to show them what union with Christ means, to show them the freedom that they have, the power of the indwelling Spirit, to show them that God is sovereign over this plan of salvation. He ends all of that with a praise. Not with going, look at how smart I am, look at I won the argument with a praise. And we need to read that, and then I'll read verses 1 through 2. And remember, as I'm reading, this is God's word. That's why we stand. Oh, the depths of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable are his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? From him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. I appeal to you therefore, brothers by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is the good and acceptable and perfect will. God, we thank you for your word. Let this sink into our lives. Let us live for your glory. In Jesus' name, you may be seated. Like I said just a moment ago, Paul starts verse 1 of Romans chapter 12 with this. Therefore, by the mercies of God, he in one sentence is basically summarizing all of chapters 1 through 11. Here's what he's showing us. He's showing us that all that we've seen about who God is, all that I just went through a minute ago, the depths of all of those things, he says it in one sentence, therefore, by the mercies of God. Some translations say it in this way, in view of God's mercy. Here's what he's saying. Everything he's about to go into in regards to a life of worship depends upon this. You having your eyes fixed upon and having a right view of who God is. Everything in your life is an outflow of how you view God. Everything in your life is an outflow of how you view God. You are presenting yourself to Him. And correct belief then leads to correct action. Correct action doesn't always lead to correct belief. But correct belief, a heart change, leads to correct action. And here's what he says. With that in view, with that in view, here's what you do. When you see all that Christ has done, when you see the the darkness of your heart, when you see how through faith you get to have relationship with Him, when you see that you get to have union with Christ and His Spirit dwells within you in all of Romans chapter 8 and all all the promises there are true, when you see this, here's the only reasonable response, it says. You gave yourself to me. You sent your Son to die for me. 
You laid down your life for me. You presented yourself to me. I give myself to you. In view of God's mercy, here's what takes place. We present our bodies. We present our bodies. Here's what I want to make a a clear point about, because I spent a lot of my life not understanding this. And if I could get you to understand this one point today, I would feel like we, we hit it out of the park. And that's this. So many of us spend our lives fighting sin rather than presenting ourselves to God. Most of us think running to God is running away from sin. Let me try to illustrate it this way because this story comes to mind. I remember getting to that age where I see my kids getting to that age now where they believe they don't need home and they don't need their father anymore, their mother. They don't need protection. They don't need help. I'm 12 years old. I got this thing. So I remember getting enough guts to to go to my mom and dad who are here today. So telling this story, will you can confirm it with them. Thanks for being here. I remember going to them and saying, hey, dad, I really think I'm old enough now to ride my bike to school. I don't need home. I'm a grown man. You know, something to that effect. He said, okay. So I had a green diamondback bike and had pegs on the back, and it was sweet. So he let me start riding my bike to school. And, and listen, I would go so slow towards home. I, didn't, I wanted to be on my own, you know. I wanted to, to ride my bike. My hair's flowing in the wind. I, I wasn't going towards home, you know. I was, I, was just, I was just kind of cruising through life, if you will. I thought I was so cool. Nobody had a bike like me. It was amazing. One day, I'm driving down the road, and I had to drive by this high school, and I'd passed it a few times, and all of a sudden, and listen, I would take the long way to get home. I would, I would just cruise, you know. I didn't care about going home. So I would go by this high school, and I saw this whole pack of high school kids looking at me, and I thought, they must like my bike, and they must think I'm pretty cool. So I stared back. I didn't know you weren't supposed to stare back. I guess they call that something like mad dogging or something like that. So the dude goes, you mad dogging me? And I was like, whoa, me? I was actually thinking we were, hit, we were having a connection, right? And, and, and all of a sudden, all of a sudden he screams it. And I look away and I start riding a little bit faster, right? And all of a sudden he goes, let's go get him, right? This is, I look back and three of them jump on their bikes and start chasing a 12-year-old kid. These punks, you know. Start chasing a 12-year-old kid. Now, here's, here's what comes to my mind immediately. Dad, you know, I want to go home. I don't want my bike anymore, you know. And nothing matters. I don't care about the bike. I just want to go home. Everything in me, I start pedaling as fast as I can. They're chasing and screaming. I can see my house up there, and I'm just set on that house. I'm not looking back. I'm screaming. And I throw my bike in the front yard, and I run in the front house, and I go, Dad, right? All of a sudden, I want home. All of a sudden, I want dad. All of a sudden, I want protection. And there's nothing 
more revealing to that than the fact of how most of us live our Christian life. We don't want nothing to do with God. We don't want nothing to do with home until our freedom starts to be dangerous. And then what do we want? Home? God? And I'm booking as fast as I can. I don't care about the green diamond back anymore. They can take it or whatever. I just want my life. I run inside, look out the window, and they take off. You want to know what happens after that? Dad, will you drive me to school? Here's the realities. Most of us, most of us live our lives running from the dangers of sin, taunting with it, playing with it, wanting it, desiring it until it becomes dangerous. Running from the dangers of sin. And most of the people who sit in my office are saying, Pastor, I'm caught in this. I'm addicted to this drug. My marriage is falling apart. All of these things are taking place. I just want this stuff fixed. And that begs the question, why? Why do you want God now? Why do you want Him now? Well, because I want Him to come in and fix it. And that answer is very telling. Many of us don't understand what it means to present our bodies towards something versus just living a life where we're constantly running from things. Reverse of that. Whenever I was going to pick up Dana from dates, I wanted to get her. I wanted her. That means... Nothing could distract me. <laughs> that means nothing could get in the way. That means if there was things that were going to take too much time, I would put them aside. Why? Because I had to pick her up at a certain time, and I wanted to be with her. This was a pursuit of something I love, and all distractions get pushed aside, and everything that could get in the way is there. And I'm not running away from things. I'm running towards something. And what happens? I push aside distractions. I get rid of things that are not there. Why? Because I want to present myself. I want to give myself. And this is the picture that God is painting when he shows what the Christian life should look like. It's less of a running from something, and it's more of a pursuit, a presenting. The question then becomes, are we presenting our lives to him. That's why it says, in view of God's mercy. It, it reminds us of how Jesus endured the cross. It doesn't say he went to the cross. It says he endured the cross. Why did he endure the cross? Because his eyes were fixed on his father. The cross was a presenting of himself to his father. The Bible says he kept his eyes fixed and he presented himself. It was a enduring of the cross with his eyes fixed. So in view of the one that you love, in view of the God that has done all these merciful things, we present ourselves to him. As what? How do you present yourself? Well, it says, in view of God's mercy, you present your bodies as a living sacrifice. My life is his. My life is his. Let me just use this chapter to kind of illustrate something that I think will carry over. 
If you look at Psalms 139, and we can't study that together, but many of you have heard this text, whether you know it or not. It's on a lot of bumper stickers and, you know, all that kind of stuff. But chapter 1, I mean, chapter, verse 1 of chapter 139 in Psalms says this, Lord, you have searched me and you know me. David says, you searched me and you know me. And then he goes into, you formed me in my mother's room. You control this. You do this. You knit me together. There's nothing that's out of I mean, he gives the most beautiful description of how sovereign and how you know everything. And nothing escapes your hand. And you see everything. And you, you are active. You're sovereign. And after all of that, verse 23 says this. Search me. Know me. Isn't it interesting that verse 1 he says, I know you know everything and I know you search everything. And then at the end, he asks him to search him and know him. Why? Because there's a difference between knowing God is sovereign and wanting him to be sovereign. There's a massive difference between you going, I know God knows everything and I know he's sovereign and I know he searches me and I know he knows me and there's another thing about going, God, search me, know me, know if, show me if there's anything in me. I want you to expose my heart. Why? Because in his presenting of himself, he's knowing how costly, how costly it is and in the costliness of all of that, he's showing us that it is very sacrificial. Why? Because he says, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. This is, I joyfully lay myself down. I'm giving myself to you, that everything that I used to have, and everything that I used to love, and everything that I once had, it's like it's like finding a great treasure in a field where I sell everything so I can have this one thing. I will give up everything. When you see who God is, you joyfully sacrifice everything else. doesn't matter the cost. The other thing is this. In worship, you do what is acceptable to God. That means you're not trying to go, God, what can you do for me? You're asking more of this question. How does God want me to live? All the questions change when you have a correct view of God, you present yourself, you joyfully sacrifice, and you want him to know his will. That's a different heart. Can you say amen to that? That's a totally different heart than running from things. That's a pursuit. That's a worshipful life. That's why Paul calls it, this is just reasonable acts of worship it's like duh it's just reasonable to live my life this way okay now verse 2 says this with all of what we just talked about in mind it says do not be conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewal of your mind by the testing you may discern what is the good and acceptable and perfect Conformed means this. It means to be shaped, to comply with, to buy into, to be influenced by. But he says, don't be conformed to the world. 
Now, it's important for us to define what world is, but I cannot spend enough time to try to break through to all of us of what world is. But this is extremely important for us to understand that what Paul is talking about here is not just like, oh, the world is out here and we're in here, and these people are worldly and we are spiritual. It it has nothing to do with that. It has more to do with systems that the world creates. And those systems are meant to influence us. Now, the best example that I can give is every system of the world is preaching its own gospel. And here's how they do this. They say, this is heaven, this is hell, and this is the Savior that will get you out of your hell into your heaven. Explain, you could take media for this very example. A consumeristic culture preaches this gospel by saying, okay, here's what ugly is, here's what beautiful is. And here's the product that will save you from ugly and make you beautiful. Right? Heaven, hell, Savior. And every Savior requires an acceptable sacrifice. This product costs this amount of money. And in order for you to get this product, you have to lay down an acceptable amount of money. It's just reasonable. Isn't it amazing? How you never have enough money until you find something that is worth all the money in the world. You will find however you can to get that product. You will always have money when you think it's worth it. Okay, another example. Hollywood tells this story. Another system of this world is this. Relationship or sexual relationship, that's heaven. Hell, singleness, being alone, that's hell. I don't like all the singles that nodded at that moment. That's hell. This is heaven. The Savior is any man or woman that will rescue you from singleness and bring you into heaven. Relationship. Acceptable sacrifice is this. I'll give them my body. I'll present it to them however they want it to be used. It's just reasonable. There are so many people who look at heaven as a sexual relationship or a meaningful relationship and hell as singleness that they will completely abandon all sense of what they need to be doing and what the will of God is and they will totally say whatever this guy wants I will lay my body down and he can do with it what he wants. They completely understand that kind of worship in that kind of context. So when it comes down to it, any of these things are preaching their own gospel and we are buying into a worldly system and worshiping the gods of this world. Hell is poverty. Heaven is wealth. The Savior is any God or anything that will bring me out of poverty and into wealth. The acceptable sacrifice is I will give all of my time All of my effort, all of that, I will sacrifice my family on that altar to get wealth. I will sacrifice my church relationships to get wealth. I will sacrifice everything so that I can get rich. You're buying into a system of a world. You're believing another gospel. You're being 
transformed and conformed into a story and you don't even realize it. The reason why we don't understand world and we try to make world out there and, and these people are worldly and we're not is because we don't understand what he's talking about is there is a worldly system that is trying to conform us to those patterns of this world. Everything in media, everything in the world around us has its own liturgies, its own worship services and here's what else you don't understand. Every one of those gospels call communities to come together and gather around it. Hey, we all love this thing. This is our God. Let's come together and talk about it and do it together and enjoy one another. And nobody understands this because this is the thing that brings us together. They all require worship. They all require sacrifice. And they all draw communities together. All of those systems of the world are all around us. And what Paul is saying is this, be aware of those worldly systems and don't be conformed to them, but be transformed by the gospel. That's the true story of all the world. You remember all the things we just learned in Romans 1 through 11, Paul is telling this true story of the whole world and who's really God and who's writing this story and the work that he's done and the work that he's done through Christ. He's saying this is the true story and the only thing that will conform, can transform you out of conformity into this world is understanding the true story and the author of that story and the one who's calling you into relationship with him. Here's what conformity looks like. Looks like complaining. Looks like comparing yourselves to others. It looks like viewing money as your own. Doing whatever makes you happy. It looks like expecting to be served. You're a consumer. It looks like you use technology to fuel your pride and to medicate yourself. It looks like your sexual expression is your deepest need. But being transformed means you're grateful. It means you care about pleasing God instead of yourself. It means you view money not as a God, but as it's all God's, and you're just a steward of it. And whatever you do with that money, you want to honor Him. It looks like I'm not a consumer, I'm a servant. Looks like all these technical technology things that we've been given are not meant for me. They're meant to build and bless real relationships. It means I know that my deepest need is Christ. That's the deepest of all relationships. Transformation comes, as verse 2 says, with a renewed mind. Isn't it amazing how Paul before he goes into all the rest of chapter 12, which we're going to study over these next 10 weeks, he points out that all of these practices that we're going to go to come out of somebody who has a renewed mind. And here's what happens in a renewed mind. A renewed mind keeps their eyes fixed on Jesus. They view God's mercy. My wife and I, this week, this happens to us once in a while, but... We go out on dates, and sometimes we just don't say anything. Or we just laugh or watch movies and check out, and other times God stirs up things. And this week, my wife came to me, and we began to talk about things God was stirring up in her life and pictures from her past and things that were taking place in her mind, and we started to talk. 
in tears, she said, I don't know where to take this stuff. Because of God's grace and his spirit, we were able to remind each other, yes, we do know where to take this stuff. You got to get your eyes fixed back on Jesus. And we began to play songs about the cross, to, to get our minds set about on the cross. And we knew that everything that was in her life, all these things that were there, we have a place to take this. We're not running from our past. We're not running from the things of our life. We have this God who we can come before and lay this all at his we can cast all of this upon him. We can keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. And the amazing thing is when I kept, when we got our eyes fixed on Jesus, the things of this world grew strangely dim. The other thing that takes place is that we stop learning to become smart and we learn to live. Let me explain that. Some people eat because it tastes good. They're connoisseurs of taste. And they eat because everything tastes good. And, and, and the reality is some of us come to church for that same very reason. We're trying to find a preacher that will serve up a tasty meal. Not many of us will come to a preacher and say, man, uh, it was tasty, it was tasty. And when people come up to me and keep saying it's tasty, I know that eventually their taste buds are going to become numb and that same person is going to say, I'm not getting fed anymore. Why? Because they're only coming to get tasty treats and they're not coming to get food to fuel their lives. Some people eat because it gives them fuel for activity. And what Paul is showing us here is this, is that when we learn and view God's mercy, let it not just go to our heads and we just get tasty treats that makes us smarter than everybody else, but remember that when we view God's mercy, it leads us to living a life of worship unto God. And what do you have to realize in that? All of life is worship to God. All of life is a presenting of yourself to Him. The last thing is this, as the band comes and we prepare ourselves for communion, don't be afraid to live differently and be different than the world around you. Here's the truth. Anybody who's not conformed to the world and is going to live as a transformed person is going to feel the effects of the world around them not liking the conviction of somebody living an obedient, submitted life. Don't be afraid to live differently. And how do we know how to live? It's because in this renewed mind, here's what God shows us, what we want most. What is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God? Isn't it amazing that as we present our lives to him as we keep our eyes fixed upon him. He gives us this new mind, and what he shows us is, here's my will. Here's what's acceptable to me. He gives us his spirit to live those things out, and he's going to take the rest of this chapter to show how that fleshes itself out. But the realities of this are very, very true. And today I hope that as we come to this communion table, that here's what takes place. you take the cup 
and before you just drink and eat, that you would go sit at your seat and as the music is playing, you would say, God, I know that you already know everything. I know you search me and I know you know me, but I want you to search my heart and know anything in me. Show me ways in which I'm being conformed to the system of this world and give me a renewed mind. I'm presenting my body to you. And before you partake of the elements, have a time of prayer meditation and let God's spirit work in your heart so that as we come together we're not just doing a religious ritual but we're presenting ourselves you know what's taking place here you're partaking of the body and blood of Jesus and it's being presented to you this is how God draws us to himself by presenting himself shows us not only how much he loves us, but he shows us on how we should respond sacrificially, lovingly, willingly. So today the challenge comes from these two verses. Are my eyes fixed upon Jesus? Am I viewing his mercy? Am I learning just to become smart or or do I want this to be an all of life is all for Jesus? I want my life to reflect his. Is my life being lived as worship? And am I afraid to live differently? Am I trying to conform to everybody around me so that they can be pleased? Or am I wanting the gospel to transform my life? So as we come, before we partake, let's meditate. God, I pray that you bless this time. I pray that you, by your spirit, would search us and know us and work in our hearts. Be actively at work in us. In Jesus' name, the tables are open. Let's respond.